welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Thursday, July 9th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 37. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness blogs on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash FamTaughtMe, and you can follow me on Instagram at FamTaughtMe to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations as single sessions, monthly sessions, or quarterly sessions, and I'd love to work with you. I've just released my new book, A Guide to Fertility Awareness as Contraception. This guidebook covers what you'll need to get started, the three primary fertility signs, the rules for contraception, and much more. You can find the book by visiting my Patreon. Today's episode is going to be about the life and history of Henrietta Lacks. As I said back when I recorded my episode on Rachel Carson, I think it's really important that we take time to acknowledge women's contributions to science. In this case, there is a massive contribution to science that was, at its root, based on the exploitation of a black woman, and later on, the exploitation of her children. If you've never heard this story before, I think it will compel you. It's disturbing to me to learn the history of Henrietta's life and to hear about the famous Gila cell line treated as her legacy when she herself didn't have any desire to contribute to science. She didn't even know her biological material was taken from her and used for research without her consent. The white gynecologist and the white researcher thought it was perfectly moral and ethical to take these cells and use them for their own ends because they needed to justify what they were doing, and they were doing it in the name of science. What is the greater good if it relies on exploitation? The outcome of their decisions, which they were never held accountable for, are the entire industry that we know today as biotechnology. Henrietta's life brings together so many connections for me, some of which I will go over today. These themes include the history of gynecology, and medical apartheid, medical rape and informed consent, multi-generational exploitation and biological racism, environmental racism, and the exploitative history of the biotech industry, which led to advances in cloning, gene mapping, the polio vaccine, cervical cancer treatment, in vitro fertilization, and more. As a reproductive health educator, I've come to learn that most of what we know about reproductive health is based on varying levels of exploitation of women as subjects, and I became really fascinated with Henrietta Lacks' story and what happened to her cells after her death because of how little I had ever heard about her and how it connects to my work. It's pretty sinister when we get into the subject of the racist and misogynistic underbelly of medical research, and that's what I hope to go over in this episode. Henrietta Lacks was born Loretta Pleasant on August 1, 1920 in Roanoke, Virginia. At the age of four, her mother died giving birth, and her father, who was unable to care for their ten children by himself, moved the family to Clover, Virginia, where the children's care was divided amongst family. Henrietta lived under the care of her grandfather, Tommy Lax, in a two-story log cabin, which was originally a slave quarters on the plantation that had been owned by Henrietta's white great-grandfather and great-uncle. She shared a room with her nine-year-old cousin and future husband, David Day Lax. When she was 14, she had her first child, Lawrence Lacks, followed by her second child, Elsie, when she was 18. Three years later, Henrietta and Day got married in Halifax County, Virginia, 
and soon after left the tobacco farm in which they worked in favor of Maryland, where Day and their cousin could work at Bethlehem Steel in Sparrows Point. Shortly after World War II drafted their cousin into the war, and he transferred some savings to Day, who was able to use it to purchase a home in Turner Station, now Dundalk, Maryland, which had a large black community. After living in Maryland, the Lacks had three more children, David Sonny Lacks Jr., Deborah Lacks Pullum, and Joseph Lacks. Just four and a half months after having her youngest child, she returned to the same hospital in which she gave birth, Johns Hopkins, because she felt what she described as a knot in her womb. She had been mentioning this for a while, but her family members just thought it was because she was pregnant. But after she had given birth, she had a severe hemorrhage, which prompted her primary care doctor to test her for syphilis, but it came back negative. This sent her back to Johns Hopkins, where the doctor Howard W. Jones took a biopsy of a mass on Henrietta's cervix for lab testing. She was then informed that she had a malignant epidermoid carcinoma of the cervix, meaning a cancer of the thin, flat cells that line the cervix, though this was a misdiagnosis, as she actually had adenocarcinoma, or cancer that begins in the glandular cells. At the time, the treatment for both conditions was the same. Henrietta was treated with radium tube inserts and discharged, being told to return for x-ray treatments to follow up. During her follow-up appointments, two samples, one of healthy tissue and the other of cancerous tissue, were taken without her consent or knowledge. The tissue samples were then handed off to George Otto Gay, a physician and cancer researcher at Johns Hopkins. The cancerous cell sample eventually became what we know of today as the HeLa Immortal Cell Line, the first and most commonly used cell line in contemporary biomedical research. In August of 1951, at the age of 31, Henrietta Lacks returned to Johns Hopkins for a routine treatment session and asked to be admitted due to severe abdominal pain. She would remain at the hospital until her death on October 4, 1951. A partial autopsy revealed that the cancer had metastasized throughout her body. She was buried in an unmarked grave in the family cemetery in Halifax County, Virginia, in an area called Laxtown, named after the slave-owning Lax family of the antebellum south. Her exact burial location is unknown, but it's believed to be close to her mother's grave site, which is marked with a stone. In 2010, Roland Patillo, a faculty member of the Morehouse School of Medicine who had worked with George Otto Gay and had known the Lacks family, decided to donate a headstone. It contains this epitaph written by her grandchildren that reads, Henrietta Lacks, August 1, 1920 to October 4, 1951. In loving memory of a phenomenal woman, wife and mother who touched the lives of many, here lies Henrietta Lacks, Gila, her immortal cells will continue to help mankind forever. Eternal love and admiration from your family. With this biography as a testament to her life, it was cut far too short by cancer. But because of the medical violence of the physicians and scientists at Johns Hopkins, her cells would go on and continue living. Henrietta's cells became known as an immortalized cell line. This is a population of cells from a multicellular organism which would typically not proliferate indefinitely, but due to mutation, they continue to undergo division. This is how the cells are grown for extended periods of time in vitro. Immortal cell lines have become an important tool for research in biochemistry and cell biology, as well as biotechnology. 
Immortalized cell lines are different from stem cells, which also divide indefinitely, but they form a normal part of the development of a multicellular organism. Some immortalized cell lines are derived from stem cells, but others are the in vitro equivalent of cancerous cells. The reason they are used in research is as a simple way to model more complex biological systems. Because these cells continue to divide, they can grow indefinitely in culture, which simplifies the analysis of these cells as compared to normal ones, which have a limited lifespan. These cell lines can be cloned and propagated indefinitely, allowing for research on genetically identical cells, which is useful for eliminating variables in scientific research. In biotechnology, immortalized cell lines are used for an array of purposes of experimentation which would otherwise be unethical to perform on living subjects. When George Otto Gay received Henrietta Lack's tissue samples, he observed that her cells were unique because of their ability to reproduce quickly and stay alive long enough for an in-depth analysis to be conducted. Up until this point, cultured cells for lab studies lived only a few days at most, making the study of them limited. This was the first time that scientists were observing cells which could divide multiple times without dying, and thus the term immortal cell lines was adopted. The exploitation continued post-mortem, when Gay had Mary Kubisek, his lab assistant, take more samples from Henrietta's body while it was being held in the Johns Hopkins autopsy facility. Gay started a cell line from the samples by isolating one cell and repeatedly dividing it, which would then be used for conducting experiments. The term HeLa comes from Gay's method for labeling samples with the first two letters of the patient's first and last names. He intentionally kept her actual name a secret, and it was not made public until after his death in 1970. It was Gay who began sharing these cells with scientists all over the world, and his choice to do so is how the use of the HeLa cell line became widespread. These cells were such a huge breakthrough that they were put into mass production and mailed around the globe to scientists who would later research countless topics including cancer, radiation, gene mapping, the effect of toxic substances on human cells, and more. They were the first cells to be successfully cloned in 1955. Scientists have grown as much as 50 million metric tons of HeLa cells, resulting in almost 11,000 patents. HeLa cells are often spoken about in a reverent manner, where the numerous important scientific breakthroughs in biomedical and biotechnical research were made possible, most notably the development of the polio vaccine. And although these advances cannot be understated because of how much they did push forward the ability for research, in my opinion, much too little time is spent discussing the ethical subtext which is woven into the life and death of Henrietta Lacks and her cells. Without a critical and informed eye, we accept these medical abuses as advancements, as we are spoon-fed all of the supposed good that has come out of them. This episode aims to ask, at what cost? Can we trust in a system that does this to its patients without interrogating the exploitation and abuse? The abuse was generational. In the 1970s, a large group of cell cultures became contaminated with HeLa cells prompting scientists and researchers to contact the Lacks children in search of more information about their family's genetics in order to clean up the mess. But the Lacks family was never notified. They had no idea that their mother's cells had been taken, remember that she didn't even know, nor that they had been one of the largest medical breakthroughs of the century. 
Not only did these scientists exploit Henrietta, nothing had changed in the 20 years since, as they wanted blood samples from her children, all without informing them of their mother's contribution to medical advancement. Making matters worse, in the 1980s, Henrietta's family medical records were published without her family's consent, when the science writer Michael Gold released a book on HeLa contamination. When Henrietta's daughter Deborah looked through it, she saw intimate details of her mother's medical record, which the family had never even seen. Both Henrietta's gynecologist, Dr. Howard Jones, and his colleague, Victor McCusick, deny giving the records to him. And the author admitted that he saw Henrietta's personal information as auxiliary details to give the piece character. As I've mentioned, neither Henrietta Lacks herself nor her family gave the physicians permission to harvest her cells while she was alive or after she died. The common excuse for this is that it was not customary at the time to seek consent. However, we know that no matter what era in history we are talking about, people are aware of their human rights and that it is no excuse for violating someone because their identity or personhood is considered less valuable. In the 1990s, the Supreme Court of California ruled in the case of Moore v. Regents of the University of California that a person's discarded tissue and cells were not their property and were open to being commercialized. Fast forward to 2013, when researchers published the DNA sequence of the genome of a strain of HeLa cells, and to the surprise of absolutely no one, they neglected to even inform, never mind ask the permission, of the remaining members of the Lax family. Jerry Lax Y, Henrietta's grandchild, told the New York Times, quote, The biggest concern was privacy. What information was actually going to be out there about our grandmother? and what information they can obtain from her sequencing that will tell them about her children and grandchildren and going down the line. Another group was working on a different HeLa cell line in 2013 and submitted it for publication with the National Institutes of Health funding. An agreement was reached between the family and the NIH that gave the family some control over access to the cell's DNA sequence found in the two studies, and a promise of acknowledging Henrietta in scientific papers. Two family members will be involved in regulating access to the sequence data. I say all of this to say that not only did the scientists exploit Henrietta Lacks for her genetic material, they doubled and tripled down on their exploitation in the decades since they began using the cells for research. Henrietta Lacks was used, and then her personhood discarded without any consideration. It took a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances to even begin to include her family in the discussion around how her cells would be used about 20 years after her death. And without advocacy and the investigative reporting of Rebecca Sklute, who is the author of the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, it most likely would never have happened. In the book Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington defines scientific racism as, quote, a wide body of mostly unflattering beliefs about the bodies and minds of people of African descent. These beliefs were presented as research findings explained by scientific theories and promulgated by whites who were sympathetic to or who were actively profiting from the institution of enslavement. So not surprisingly, scientific racism provided medical and scientific justifications for slavery. The author goes on to say, the dearly held precepts of scientific racism sound nakedly racist, absurd or both today, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, scientific racism was simply science, 
and it was promulgated by the very best minds at the most prestigious institutions in the nation. Understanding this context of the history of medicine is necessary to framing the story of what happened to Henrietta Sells. One facet of apartheid that I think can sometimes go understated is that it also means to erase you right out of your own history. Johns Hopkins now has a section on their website dedicated to lax. It begins, In 1951, a young mother of five named Henrietta Lax visited the Johns Hopkins Hospital complaining of vaginal bleeding. Upon examination, renowned gynecologist Dr. Howard Jones discovered a large malignant tumor on her cervix. At the time, the Johns Hopkins Hospital was one of only a few hospitals to treat poor African Americans. As medical records show, Mrs. Lax began undergoing radium treatments for her cervical cancer. This was the best medical treatment available at the time for this terrible disease. A sample of her cancer cells retrieved during a biopsy were sent to Dr. George Gay's nearby tissue lab. For years, Dr. Gay, a prominent cancer and virus researcher, had been collecting cells from all patients who came to the Johns Hopkins Hospital with cervical cancer, but each sample quickly died in Dr. Gay's lab. What he would soon discover was that Mrs. Lack's cells were unlike any of the others he had ever seen. Where other cells would die, Mrs. Lack's cells doubled every 20 to 24 hours, end quote. Not only does this statement position Johns Hopkins as being on the right side of history by treating black people during segregation, it makes zero mention of the exploitation of Dr. Howard Jones, her gynecologist, and Dr. Gay, the researcher, that they participated in by taking her cells without her consent and using them for any purpose. This erasure, while simultaneously venerating the life of Henrietta, someone who never consented, someone who we will never know if she would have consented, is particularly violent. And this is what institutions that became rich and famous off of her cells do. They revise history, positioning themselves as benevolent actors. Yet throughout the text about Henrietta's life, they use passive voice, such as that her cells were, quote, retrieved during a biopsy, and in another section, quote, cells obtained during the treatment of Henrietta's cancer. Their website makes clear that, quote, Johns Hopkins has never sold or profited from the discovery or distribution of HeLa cells and does not own the rights to the HeLa cell line. Rather, Johns Hopkins offered HeLa cells freely and widely for scientific research. End quote. In reality, it's actually that there was no established practice for informing or obtaining consent from a cell or tissue donor, nor were there any regulations on the use of cells in research. This does not mean that it wasn't exploitative. Rather, it was just that there was little recourse for her family to obtain any compensation nor control over the cells. A lawyer for her family stated, Johns Hopkins had continued to violate the personal rights, privacy, and body parts of Henrietta Lacks over time. They are literally the foundation of modern medical science, end quote. Naming a research building and lecture series after Henrietta Lacks does not make up for this gross abuse and exploitation, nor do empty platitudes about her legacy. Johns Hopkins owes reparations for using Henrietta's body for their own purposes, which enriched their institution and related institutions with which they shared her cells. The fact that they refused to even acknowledge their unethical role speaks volumes. We can further contextualize what hospitals were at the time. 
far from the sterile environments for healing we might associate with them today. In Medical Apartheid, Washington explains that American hospitals of the time were more, quote, a physician-centered venue for learning, training, and experimental approaches. These were conducted on black people and other poor, desperate people without resources. In fact, hospitals were incentivized to establish a hospital only for black people to ensure a supply of patients for clinical instruction. Hospitals expected blacks to submit to research as, quote, payment for having been treated in charity wards. We can see that this is the true motivation of Johns Hopkins Hospital in the 1950s when Henrietta went to seek treatment for her pain. Throughout Henrietta Lack's story, there are white men and women who participated in the exploitation of her body who became renowned and otherwise benefited from her cells. In the 50s and 60s, Chester M. Southam, a virologist, used HeLa cells for experimentation. They were injected into cancer patients, prison inmates, and healthy individuals to observe whether cancer could be transmitted or if humans could become immune to cancer. He conducted clinical research without the informed consent of his subjects and participated in many other instances of fraud, deceit, and unprofessional conduct. He was later elected president of the American Association for Cancer Research and became a professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Medical College until the end of his career in 1979. Despite all of the abuse suffered under his experimentation, he received prominent positions, awards, and accolades. As much as HeLa cells are lauded for their ability to conduct experiments without having to use human subjects, in the earliest decades of their use, they were actually used for the exact opposite purpose, literally injected into other marginalized human beings. I would like to also talk about something that I notice is curiously missing from the narrative about Henrietta Lack's life, the impact of environmental racism on her illness. As mentioned in her biography, after Henrietta and Day got married in Halifax County, Virginia, they left the tobacco farm in which they worked and moved to Maryland so Day and their cousin could work at Bethlehem Steel in Sparrows Point. Sparrows Point was rapidly becoming the largest steel plant in the world. Bethlehem Steel provided employment for over 30,000 workers, and it attracted many black families with the promise of consistent work, though black workers were given the worst jobs. Black workers usually started by collecting bolts, rivets, and nuts from men who were drilling and welding ships from above, and moved up to the boiler room where they shoveled over 6 million tons of coal each year to make 8 million tons of steel. In their work environment, they breathed in toxic coal dust and asbestos. It coated their clothing and exposed their wives and daughters who washed their clothes. Another possible way that one can be exposed to asbestos fibers is in the vagina and cervix through sexual intercourse. The toxicity was actually so bad that eventually Day received a $12,000 settlement from a class action lawsuit against a boiler manufacturer over the lung damage that resulted from asbestos exposure at Bethlehem Steel. We'll never know if the asbestos exposure had any impact on her fast-growing cervical cancer, but we do know that those exposed to asbestos face a higher risk of cervical and ovarian cancer than the general population. We also know that by the early 2000s, nearly all the lax children were suffering from health issues. Day had prostate cancer and asbestos-filled lungs. Sonny had a bad heart. Deborah had arthritis, osteoporosis, nerve deafness, anxiety, and depression. 
Not a single one of her children had health insurance or enough money to treat their health conditions privately. One of Henrietta's sons, Lawrence, asked the author Rebecca Skloot, If our mother is so important to science, why can't we get health insurance? With this speculation about the impact of asbestos aside, we know Henrietta Lacks was suffering from cervical cancer. In 1984, three decades beyond her death, the German virologist Harold Zerhausen had found that HeLa cells contained multiple copies of human papillomavirus 18, HPV 18. And we now know that HPV 16 and HPV 18 contribute to about 70% of all cases of cervical cancer. HPV 18 inserts its DNA into normal cells, which force them to produce proteins that ultimately lead to cancer. In this case, the virus turned off the gene that would normally suppress the formation of tumors. HeLa cells have an enzyme called telomerase that is activated during cell division. Under normal circumstances, telomerase gradually depletes to stop the cells from dividing indefinitely. But in the case of HeLa, active telomerase rebuilds telomeres that are cut during cellular division, allowing for indefinite proliferation. Zerhausen continued his work on HPV and cervical cancer, and in 2008, he won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovering that HPV-16 and HPV-18 caused cervical cancer. This prize was controversial, and Swedish police conducted an anti-corruption investigation to determine if AstraZeneca, a pharmaceutical company developing the HPV vaccine, influenced two members of the Nobel Prize Selection Committee but charges were never filed. To this day, scientists are still using the HeLa cell line to study HPV and the pathogenesis of cervical cancer at institutions like Yale. In a curious moment, I looked up Zerhausen's Nobel lecture from 2008, and Henrietta Lack's name was never mentioned. The pattern of her erasure continues as more white people continue to benefit and profit off of her body. HeLa cells also have a connection to modern reproductive technology. Henrietta's gynecologist, Dr. Howard Jones, was the first person to diagnose Henrietta's cervical cancer tumor. He left Johns Hopkins in the 70s and started a reproductive research center in Virginia with his wife, Georgiana, who was an endocrinologist. The Joneses are responsible for developing the in vitro fertilization technique in the United States, and this technology is a direct result from knowledge gained through using HeLa cells. Part of the dehumanization and erasure of Henrietta has been in the mutation of HeLa cells. Genetically, HeLa cells contain part of Henrietta Lacks' DNA. Mutations introduced by the strain or strains of HPV that infected her, as well as uncounted numbers of new mutations introduced organically through cellular division after the original cells were harvested from her body. A normal human cell has 46 chromosomes. A HeLa cell tends to have between 70 and 90. In the early 1990s, scientists began to argue that HeLa cells were, quote, no longer human because of these mutations. But we could believe that it was easier for scientists to conceptualize these cells as simply a part of the lab and not that they belonged to a human being who never consented to them being used. The current rhetoric around these cells are that they are now their own species of single-celled organism that reproduces asexually through division and evolves through compounded mutations over time and is a domesticated species that could not survive without human intervention. And I can't help 
but think that these are excuses to continue the violence towards Henrietta that happened in life long after her death. Henrietta Lacks cells have done extraordinary things in the eyes of many scientists. Cloning, gene mapping, preventing polio and HPV, HIV treatments, and basically everything we know today under the banner of biotechnology. Yet the quote racial health gap is as deep as ever. In medical apartheid, Washington states, quote, the much bewailed racial health gap is not a gap, but a chasm wider and deeper than a mass grave. This gulf has riven our nation so dramatically that it appears as if we were considering the health profiles of people in two different countries, a medical apartheid. Researchers have proffered a cornucopia of theories for this medical divide, many of which focus upon putative biological dimorphisms, especially genetic differences. But in dissecting this shameful medical apartheid, an important cause is usually neglected, the history of ethically flawed medical experimentation with African Americans. Such research has played a pivotal role in forging the fear of medicine that helps perpetuate our nation's racial health gulf. Historically, African Americans have been subjected to exploitative, abusive, involuntary experimentation at a rate far higher than other ethnic groups. Thus, although the heightened African American weariness of medical research and institutions reflects a situational hypervigilance, it is neither a baseless fear of harm nor a fear of imaginary harms. This masterfully describes the origins and contradictions built within the quote racial health gap and properly contextualizes the history of medical experimentation on black people. The quintessential example of this is the life of Henrietta Lacks. Despite the medical establishment's hasty proclamation of her legacy, the real core of this story is about the continued abuse of black people in science and medicine, and this should concern all of us. There are, of course, many black people today working in all facets of science and medicine to not just close this gap, but to eradicate white supremacist logic and scientific racism from the future of these disciplines. It will be the building up of new institutions where black people are leaders and actors, where black patients will be given integrated, culturally appropriate, and comprehensive medical options. The work extends beyond science and medicine as black people are undoubtedly impacted by racism in their living spaces, workplaces, and other aspects of their livelihoods. Henrietta Lacks' biography and history is one of the most important ones that I've ever learned about, and I hope that this work brings some critical thought to the idea of what legacy is, who gets to define it, and what it means for all of us to benefit from the exploitation of an unnamed black woman. Thank you, Henrietta Lacks. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please share it. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor. If you can take a moment to rate and review me, I really appreciate that as it helps more people find this show. This episode is brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Education Initiative, hashtag FamTaughtMe. You can subscribe to my Patreon and gain access to member services at www.patreon.com slash famtaughtme and follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more. I've just released my new book, A Guide to Fertility Awareness as Contraception, and you can find the book by visiting my Patreon. This concludes episode 37 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night. Thank you.